You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Hey, this week, it's been a crazy week in our culture and in our news, uh, even just seeing the shooting in Parkland, Florida. Uh, my heart just breaks. Uh, last week, I shared with you just some of our experience from Columbine High School when I was a youth pastor. And, and I just want to take a moment, if you'll pray with me, because my heart goes out, not only for the tragedy of what's happened and the people who have empty beds in their homes right now, but even more so because they don't know the long road ahead. They don't know what's going to happen when their kid has PTSD. They don't know what's going to happen when they're, uh, uh, you know, a, a junior in high school sleeping on his parents' floor in their bedroom afraid that the older brother is going to come home from college and just have irrational fears because of what they've been through. And uh, will you just pray with me for the churches, for the people of Florida just at this time? Let's just gather together. God, we just come before you and we ask that in your great mercy, God, we... We know that situations like this happen in our world because of evil. And we are so grateful to you, God, that you reach out and you leverage even what the evil one wants to use to destroy. God, you leverage that to bring new life. And I ask that today, God, there would be people in churches in Florida because they've had nowhere else to run to find answers, to find hope, that God is a wake up in their lives and that they run back to you and that, God, they would find you. Would you, God, give wisdom to those churches and those ministries and the youth pastors? Would you draw people alongside them to care for the caretakers, God, that just even a year down the road that those youth pastors would be being taken care of as they've walked through the darkest valleys with families? God, would you, in the way only you can, would you bring comfort to the families who've experienced loss that has no sensibility to it. There will be no answers that satisfy them ever. And God, would you just care for them? Would you be enough for them? And God, we pray that you would just sustain them. I pray, God, that you would bring what the enemy intended for evil, a great victory for your name's sake. I pray that people would turn to live for the things that are ultimately important in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. We want to wonder, how do we live with the end in sight? Peter is writing to a bunch of people who are being persecuted. They are under persecution, and it's, it's kind of worldwide for them right now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to the people that Peter is writing this letter to, it's worldwide persecution. There's nowhere for them to go to be safe from it. It's all over the place. And, and he's saying, you have everything to live for. And the future starts right now. And they're thinking, we don't know how long our future will be. We're under persecution, and it's, it's a terrible time. There's there's evident evil in the world, and it's not just affecting people across the country, it's affecting us, and it's persecution of the church of Jesus Christ, and, and Peter begins to give them some secrets, and you and I some secrets of how to live with the end in sight. You say, well, what do you mean, Dave, like live with the end in sight? What does that actually mean when you say that? And if you're a parent in this room, you kind of get it a little bit, like when you first had that little baby, and you're just praying, you're like, God, I want to be a good parent, but really you're thinking, God, it just needs to sleep through the night. Please, just like that would be a miracle in and of itself. You're like, the hallelujahs are happening if it would just sleep through the night. And, and the truth is you do think about those practical day-to-day -day moments, those daily gains. But in reality, you also look ahead and you think like, who do I want this little child to be? 
Who do I want them to become? Like, uh, what's the high schooler that I want them to be? What's the young adult that I want to prepare them to be? And, and I need you, God. Like, how do I get to that point? And maybe you're at the point where you're past having kids. And you're like, how do I get to the point where I would want to be so that I'm living for what ultimately is important and I don't end up like somebody else that you've watched their life and they've turned bitter in their old age. You watch somebody else and you're like, I don't want to be like that person. How do I make it? How do I have daily gains to achieve keeping the end in sight so that I live for what is truly most important? Heather and I began to ask that question with our kids. How do we, how do we, what do we do now to help them? And, and I was youth pastor at the time. So here we are having little babies and little kids and little toddlers. And yet we're working with high schoolers. So it's very evident for us that here these little guys are now, but what are they going to be when they're the high schoolers age? And then as they started to grow, we're like, well, we, how do we get them to be the young adults that we want them to be? And please understand, we, we get free will that it's our effort, but it's combined with their decision to make right decisions in response to the Lord. There are no guarantees. And if your kids didn't turn out exactly how you wanted, this is not a venue for any guilt because every child has its own free will. But we begin to ask, what could we do proactively for them to live with the end in sight? And one of the things we decided, even when they were young, was that they need meaningful tasks where they can serve at church. That even when they're little, they're going to say, Dad, even though I'm little, I have different gifts than you do, and I need to use and express those gifts in the church. They're like, Dad, you're doing certain things, and that's your gift, but I have other gifts. And so as, as those gifts begin to come to light, we just champion them to serve in the church because we wanted them to look with the end in sight. And so our kids began to serve. In fact, more often, our kids didn't just attend church or attend youth group but rather they oftentimes would forego being in another location because they would serve the Lord. My boys, Matt and Josh, when we first got here nine years ago to Sun Grove Church, they served in the kindergarten class. And they were fun and they would work with these kids. They were junior hires, but they're working with kindergartners. And I want to tell you what's so interesting is now, that kindergarten class, they're in high school this year. But as my boys are working with them, they're thinking not just how do we want them to behave as good kindergartners, they're thinking what will it look like for them to be high schoolers? What kind of foundation can we lay in their lives that we pray and hope that they will never recover from? And they served in the church. They celebrated and they served, but it wasn't always easy. Zach, who just, our oldest, who just led us in that song, came and wanted to play drums in the youth band. And he was a brand new ninth grader, I think, at the time that we moved up. And he, he wanted to play in just the youth group band. And as he began to do that, there was another drummer who felt, I think, threatened and bullied Zach to the point where he almost quit. He almost quit serving at church. Almost quit doing music. Because it just was brutal for him to go and experience a kid who just would antagonize him at a church youth band. And we just wouldn't let him quit. We said, Zach, no, we'll work with it. We'll make sure it's a safe environment. We'll, you know, work on that stuff, but you've got to stick it out. You've got to stick in there because we didn't want him because his feelings got hurt or our feelings got hurt for him to quit and walk away because we're looking at the end in sight. We don't want our child to say it's just easier to leave if it gets hard. 
And there were times in the nine years that we've been here, that in the early years, that we got more grossly misunderstood by people who had been here a long time than we've ever been misunderstood in our lives. And there were times our feelings got hurt and their feelings got hurt. And, and we began to say, we, we have got to look long down the road to live with the end in sight. Who does God want the people of Sun Grove to be? Who does God want to change us? How do we want to take the values that existed at Sun Grove and be able to move them to be the values that represent the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ? And there were times that it could have been easy for us to be like, you know what, wow, that, that's just hurtful to us or whatever. And maybe we could just pack up and we could go somewhere else. And, and we didn't. We said, no, we believe that we're going to do the next right thing and that the Lord will teach us to endure and that we're going to live with the end in sight of what God wants to do. And we're so glad all this time that we never threw in the towel and more so for our kids. Could you imagine our kids growing up in the church? They would learn, ooh, church people can hurt my family. Ooh. You know, it can be a bad place to be. But what are we teaching our kids? We said, no, we want to show them that God is your defender, that God brings things in the directions that he wants, that ultimately he is sovereign. And we didn't want to teach them just to throw in the towel and quit when it got hard. In the past nine years, my hair has turned pretty gray, <laughs> mostly because my age. But also just there's stresses in life, stresses in ministry. And, and here's what I got to tell you has not happened. Uh, what has not happened is I have not lost my joy. Um, I've not lost my resolve to serve the Lord with all my heart and to do what ultimately matters. I continue to live with the end in sight. I think our best days as a church are ahead. It's a beautiful season right now, and it's a beautiful season where we're going. And I want us as a body to continue to live for what really matters. And it's weeks like this week that begin to show us that we're not exempt from evil in the world and we're not exempt from tragedy and we're not exempt from being persecuted, whether it's religious persecution or it's outright murder, we're not exempt. So let's live with the end in sight because you have everything to live for and the future starts now, no matter how long that future is. And what Peter is communicating to people of the church who believed in Jesus Christ in the first century as he writes this letter of 1 Peter, we'll be in chapter 4 today. Take out your outline out of your program. You're going to have some fill in the blanks there. And, and let me tell you, some of the parts of this message might feel difficult to you today. But I want to encourage you that for this one hour, it'll feel difficult to you, but I've had to deal with it all week. That that's the way it works sometimes with pastors, that God begins to lean on us and talk to us and reveal what he wants to through his word. And Peter's writing through a headline that reads something like this, by living an obedient and victorious life under duress, a Christian can actually evangelize a hostile world. And so Peter gives you and I some secrets about enduring. He gives us some secrets about how to make it. He gives us some secrets about how to achieve daily gains so that we live with the end in sight. We get some of the results that we're actually looking for so we live for what really matters. And so in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin, and as a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. And they're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. 
See, when you and I begin to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, we walk away from those who just live as the flesh wants to live. And and people in the world don't understand. The world does not recognize and understand when you're deciding to do the next right thing and to make some changes in your life and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to work on the inside and for you to cooperate with the work he already wants to do. They don't get it. They don't understand. So they, they heap abuse on you. It makes no sense to them why you would do the right thing. It makes no sense to them that you as a person would say, I want to consider and listen to the counsel of God. And that's like crazy talk to them. Makes no sense. So they'll heap abuse on you. And I want to tell you something. As a believer in Jesus Christ, if they persecuted Jesus, they will absolutely persecute you. If they did it to him, they will do it to you. In fact, if Jesus were alive right now in a physical body on our earth, if he was wandering around in a physical body on our earth, in our culture here in America, there would be people who would be out to actually persecute him definitely and attempt ultimately to kill him. Because Jesus would be so countercultural to the American dream, so countercultural to our ideas of security, so countercultural to our self indulgence, so countercultural to our debauchery. They would seek to kill him. And if they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute you. So Peter starts giving us some secrets. Well, how do you do that? How do you live a Christian life in the midst of those who will mock you, who will persecute you, who will make fun of you? He says, do this that you and I, must resolve in my attitude to suffer for Jesus. He uses this phrase, he says, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves, give yourself the same attitude that Christ had in order to endure and face the cross. The victory for a lot of us, and I hope you feel this way, maybe you're in the loft and you feel this way and you're sitting up there and the victory for you is that when you go through that door of death and none of us wants to go through that door and none of us really knows when it's going to show up or how it's going to happen, but, but we're not exempt. When we go through that door of death, as bad as that is, the beautiful thing for you is that you realize we are done with sin. Won't that be a great moment? Won't that be a great moment that once we've gone through death, we're like, I don't have to deal with sin anymore. The man I have the biggest problem with in my life is me. And some of you are thinking in this room, the woman that I've got the most issues with, the biggest problem in this world with is me. And you begin to think that about yourself. And the beautiful thing is we'll be released from the tension of sin. But until that time, you and I are going to be mocked. We're going to be marginalized. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to suffer. We're going to make decisions that make no sense to the world's understanding. And so Peter's saying, arm yourselves with the same attitude and the same resolve that Jesus had in order to follow through and endure the cross. And persecution and suffering changes us. If you've ever been through a massive health scare, you begin to consider what's ultimately important. If you've been through a near-death experience, a car accident, or, or you almost fell off something, you, you begin to Consider in life what really is ultimately important. If you go through persecution, if you go through an immense amount of suffering, it changes who you are. And it makes you and I grow. And we have to resolve in that thing. I'm going to suffer for Jesus if the time ever came where you'd have to endure that. But we got to realize that persecution and suffering refine me to live for the things that really matter. Don't they? I mean, you go through that stuff and you're like, now I'm going to consider what really matters. 
It, it, the other things that are, these are not important things. All other things can kind of stop because what really matters are family. What really matters are relationships. What really matters is eternity. What really matters is the will of God. And so Peter is saying, listen, I've been through the transformation. Here's what happens. He says, as a result, if you suffered in the body, you do not live the rest of your earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Why? Because when you and I suffer, a lot of the things we think are so important get stripped away. And Peter's saying, I've been through that. I understand that. So now my desire to say that I have everything to live for, that I have a future hope, the future starts now, is because I've been refined through persecution and suffering. I now live for the will of God. So think for a moment. If, for example, the things that you and I own are under threat of being confiscated for being a believer, you and I are going to continue to live for what matters. That is Christ, people, and the next generation. That you're going to say, listen, I'm going to live for things that are really important so that high schoolers who go through an immense tragedy in Parkland, Florida, can walk away and say, in the midst of all this evil, in the midst of this horrible thing that happened, can there be hope? Can there be answers? Can there be help? Is there somebody out there who believes in me enough to say, I will make it through this horrible time? Where is their hope? They need to know that there is. You and I we began to live for things like the next generation. If the things I found security in suddenly got removed, whether it's your health or maybe it's all your money or it's something else, if those things get stripped away, then I'm free. I'm like freed up to live the remainder of my life for Christ and his kingdom. And if I'm saved, here's what the expectation is, and I think we lose sight of this a lot. The expectation is that I'm saved, it all belongs to Jesus. Everything. Some people think, oh, it's just it's the tie, though I got to serve somehow. No, no, everything is his. So, Lord, if we got persecuted, your stuff got taken away. Lord, your credit score got taken away. Lord, you, you on all these areas, these things got stolen or taken away from me. But you say, instead, everything in life is no longer my own. In fact, if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, everything is his. And I'm bought with a price through Jesus' blood, I'm no longer my own. I'm set apart to live for his honor and his praise and his glory. Can you say amen? Amen. Well, many of you would say amen or shake your heads, but let me play a little game with you for a minute. Let's get real. I want to ask, is your Christian life a game? Is it a game? Or is it real? Suppose, just for a moment, let's suppose a massive nationwide persecution of Christians, Lord forbid, but let's say a national nationwide persecution of Christians broke out against us. Like we couldn't meet here. We had to go meet in secret at a park or somewhere. But like a massive nationwide persecution broke out all over our nation. You couldn't run to Texas and be safe. You couldn't go hide in like North Carolina where you think a bunch of Christians are at. You just had nowhere to go all over the land. How much as a percentage would your life and your priorities change if that happened? Like compared to how you're living now, if persecution happened, what degree of things would need to change in your life? And I want you to maybe just write down a percentage on your outline. that you write, For some of you, it might be like, well, I think about 10% of my life would change. Maybe 20% or 50% or some of you are like, 90% of my life would change if persecution happened to Christians, like everything would change in life. And some of the things that you and I hold on to and think are so important, we would just drop immediately, right? 
Like maybe it's your kid's sports. You're like, I'm not going where other people are if there's nationwide persecution. I'm not putting myself out there. What if they know I'm a believer? You might drop that. You might drop your exercise class. You might drop the importance of your house or your residence or your home improvements, that things that were so important right now that you look back later and go, that place has become a building and it could get confiscated from me. What's really important is my home and home is not a building. Home is the people and the community of Christ and the culture of Christianity that I'm living for. What about your retirement and putting security in that? What if that were gone? What about your physical possessions, your transportation, your credit score, your wardrobe, your job? So write that down for a minute. Just if nationwide persecution broke out, what percentage of how you live now would have to change to live for what really matters? And the follow-up question is, why aren't we living that way now? Why wait? Why do we get so distracted like we do? Why do we get so consumed with loving the world and trying to love Christ? Why do we do that? But just suppose for a minute, suppose banks refused to talk to you and your credit cards were canceled and, and other people actually didn't want to sell to you or loan you stuff because of fear for them to get in trouble and your residence, whatever it was, your apartment, your house, whatever, let's say it was confiscated. And you're like, come on, Dave, that stuff would just never happen. Oh, really? Why don't you ask the Jewish survivor of the Holocaust what happened before they went to a concentration camp? Why don't you read about the end times in the book of Revelation? Why don't you ask a Christian in parts of Muslim-occupied Nigeria what happens to them when people come and attack them and take their possessions and try to burn them down while they're in church? Why don't you ask some of the people we work with in India, our missionaries and the people in India whose property is confiscated, whose livelihood is taken away, who are marginalized and are beaten, and they simply, people run in and start beating them. They just cry out to the name of Jesus. My first trip to India, we were at a church that we had planted there. And at that worship service, a lady came forward and she wanted prayer. And so we've got a translator right here. And the lady comes forward, she wants prayer. And, and she's got a piece of newspaper. So it would be like having a newspaper in her hand. But there's a pile of dirt on the newspaper. And on top of that, she's got like a water bottle just on its side. And, and the, the translator said, oh, she wants you to pray over her dirt. Like, That's weird. Pray for her dirt? What's that? I mean, this is <laughs> definitely a different experience, right? So... I said, well, explain, why does she want me to pray over the dirt? And so he starts talking. They're talking back and forth. I don't have any idea what they're saying. And finally, the missionary turns to me and he says, well, she wants you to pray over the dirt because her land where she lived has gotten taken. Her house has been taken away. She's been kicked off her land. She's the poorest of the poor. She has no recourse. She can't go to the authorities. They would just laugh at her. And so the only place she has to go live is where she's taken this dirt from. It's the only available land. And I'm thinking, well, that's great. And he goes, but she can't live there right now. I'm thinking, well, why not? And her answer was, because the land has cobras all over it. And so she wants me to pray over the dirt and the water bottle, and she's going to go back and sprinkle the dirt that's been prayed over on her land so it will chase the cobras away so she has a place to live. Oh, heck yeah, I'll pray for your dirt. Absolutely, right? So we pray over that. God, you make that holy. God, you chase away the creatures and provide for this woman who's being persecuted. It happens in our world. So what percentage of your life would radically shift if you began to live with the end in sight? 
See, so often we lose sight of the eternal because we're so focused on the temporary. And God wants us to focus on the eternal, to say you have an inheritance that will never perish or spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. You've got everything to live for right now. The future begins right now. So I want to give you a few decisions that Peter talks to us about in this passage. Three questions I want you to ask every day. And the first question on your outline is this, am I going to live, am I going to choose to live a sinful life or a holy life? See, every day you get up in the morning and you have a time of decision. You say, I, I'm going to choose. Am I going to live a holy life today or am I going to live a sinful life? Am I going to live like the rest of the world lives? And am I going to live for all the things that please the world or attempt to that don't ultimately satisfy? Or am I going to live a godly life? So am I going to choose to live for self or am I going to live for God? You're going to say, am I going to live for my flesh, which desires certain things, or am I going to live for God's Holy Spirit? Am I going to be willing to suffer for Christ? That's a question you and I ask. Am I going to live a sinful life or a holy life? See, Peter thought he was ready. Peter thought, God, I'm all in. I'm going to do everything. I would die for you, he tells Jesus, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Peter's like, I will die for you. And Peter's like, uh, Jesus is like, whoa, time out, Peter. Actually, tonight, before tomorrow morning when the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times tonight that you even know me. You're going to be ashamed that you know me out of fear and persecution. You're going to want to run away and hide. Now, let's be fair to Peter. Peter's following along with Jesus. Jesus is doing great and mighty things. He's doing miracles that nobody can do. And Jesus is doing these things. And it looks like things are going great for Jesus. But Peter doesn't have the end in sight. He doesn't realize that what looked like I was on the right path and going great and I would die for it, that Jesus is going to be captured. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked and spit upon. He's going to be crucified on the cross. He's going to be dead and buried in the grave. And at that point, Peter's like, I am running away and hiding. And then I'm going back to my old lifestyle of fishing. Because what I thought was secure obviously was not. And let's be fair to him. When he denied Christ three times, it's because he didn't have the end in sight. He didn't know that on Easter morning, Jesus would rise from the dead, that he would conquer sin and death, that Jesus would show that you have everything to live for, that you're not finished, that the future begins right now. And you begin to ask, well, what makes Peter go from a guy who was afraid and ran back to being a fisherman to being a guy who would stand up and give the first sermon where 3,000 people in Jerusalem are saved that same day and baptized? What changes a guy from this to that? The difference is what changes them is that they get the end in sight. And so that was the case for Peter. What made him move from one thing to another? What made him move from a guy who denied Christ to later in the 14th year of the reign of Emperor Nero was martyred for his beliefs in Christ? In fact, he was crucified, but he was crucified upside down because Peter said this. He said, he was, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord Jesus. He's saying, you can kill me, but don't kill me the same way that Jesus died upright. I, turn me upside down. And they did. Peter had to make some daily decisions. How do you get from I deny Christ to I'll actually be crucified for Christ? What happens between those two ends? Well, he had to make some daily decisions. He had to experience some daily gains to get to the place, the advancement that he wanted to, to get to the point where he's living with the end in sight. And he had to be assured of some realities. He had to be assured that even if I die, there's a resurrection. 
And he had seen it firsthand in Jesus, where before he was full of bravado, but after he was full of assurance, there was resurrection after death. Peter had already been beaten. He had been jailed. An angel of the Lord came and freed him from jail, made the chains fall off, opened the door. He walked out. Herod, who had imprisoned Peter, was so angry that he killed the guards who were supposed to guard him all night. He killed them because Peter got away. Peter's wife was crucified right in front of him. And he continued still. What makes a guy who used to deny Christ get to the point where he will, as his wife is being crucified, said, remember our Lord Jesus. Remember that there's a resurrection after the death. What makes a guy go from one to the other? Peter kept living with the end in sight. So let that sink in. As we look at this passage and we look at his encouragements, let's understand where he is and what he's gone through. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, it says this. He's speaking about the people who mock, the people who don't understand, the people who live in the debauchery, the people who live like our world lives, like the American culture. He's talking about us. He says, they will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so they might be judged according to human standard in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober what? Mind, sober mind, so that you may pray. He says, arm yourselves at first. Arm yourself with the same resolve that Jesus had to suffer, to be willing to suffer. But now he's saying, listen, there's some things that go on. Those people who live however they please, they will have to give an account for the way that they live. Then he says this interesting statement. He says, for this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. People wonder, what is he talking about? What do you mean? What he's saying to these people who are being persecuted, he's saying that for the same reason, the gospel, the good news of Jesus was preached to some of your friends and some of your relatives who were martyred for God. They were judged by the world in regard to their flesh because that's all the world can judge. The world can only judge our flesh. They can look and say, we don't like you, we want to persecute you, and our judgment is we're going to kill you. They judge in regard to the flesh. But Peter's saying, but those believers in Jesus, they're judged in regard to the spirit because they have the spirit of Christ in them. They are declared not guilty. They are free in the afterlife. And so he's saying, live with the end in sight. The end of all things is near. Be alert and of sober mind so you may pray. And sometimes you and I don't live like the end is near, do we? This week, if anything else, showed us that the end could happen suddenly, unexpectedly, in the worst case scenario. You and I don't know when your last breath is. You and I don't know when our time is up. We don't know. There will always be people who say, oh, here's when Jesus is going to come back. I've tried to study the Bible and tell him. The Bible says no one knows the day or the hour of the return of the Lord Jesus. They'll be like, we'll do it. We'll put it on our calendar. You be sure to watch. And he'll show up. And then it's a really awkward day for that person. And Jesus didn't show up. But sometimes you see that and you think, well, maybe that's in the distant future. Maybe it couldn't be tomorrow. It couldn't be later today. So my question that you ask yourself, the first one is, am I going to live a holy life or a sinful life? The second one is, is Jesus' return imminent or is that an illusion to me? Could Jesus come back at any moment? 
And if so, what will you and I be doing? How will we be living? How will we be leveraging our life? Are we living for what is ultimately important in life? Or are we just living a self-centered American kind of life? You've got everything to live for. And the future starts now. God has promised believers that through death, we will overcome all sin. That'll be a great moment. I can't wait for it. Not the death experience, but the reality after death that will be done with sin. Isn't that good news? That is great news. But the problem is there's this door and that door is called death. And you and I have got to face that door and that door has got to open up and you and I have got to go through it. But once through it, we are freed from all sin. We overcome it. The second thing that God promises believers is that through death, those doors open up and you and I have got to go through it. But through death, we will escape final judgment. See, some of you are convinced in your minds that you got this moment in your future where you stand before God and every word you've ever said and every bad decision and every wrong thing you've ever done is played up on the big screen in heaven. And some of your friends are like, oh my gosh, that's so embarrassing. And, and you're just worried that like, oh, I've got to relive my whole life and all my mistakes. And, but I want you to know that the scriptures are clear that for the believer through death, you go through death and you enter that and you escape final judgment. You are judged in regard to the spirit. You have the spirit of Christ. You are entering God's pleasures at his right hand. Through death, you and I will enter. We got to go through death, but we enter heaven in holy perfection. Someday you will be perfect. Perfectionists in the room are like, amen. You will be holy but you gotta go through that door of death to get there. That problem is that the entry point is through death. None of us escapes that eventuality. Like our Lord Jesus, Peter is saying, you've gotta die before there's a resurrection. You've gotta endure it, so be willing. Be willing to endure it. Uh, uh, Peter who said, I will die for you, Lord, but wasn't willing at that time, later in life was like, I will go through whatever it takes. In fact, because I've suffered in my flesh through beatings and imprisonment and all sorts of things, I'm done. I'm done with the way I used to live. I'm now living for what is ultimately important. Non-believers. There may be some of you in this room. You're saying, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm just checking this thing out. And I wanted to say, you're in the best place. If that's you, you are totally in the right place to be able to get some questions answered, to interact with the Bible, to check things out, to just see, is God real and does God love you? And the answer to that is yes, you're in the right place. But I got to let you know that non-believers have a different after-death experience. If you reject Jesus Christ, if you are like those who, who shun him, who reject him, who choose not to believe him, but want to believe what you feel is in your heart, that you will give an account to God for every word. You will give an account to God for every word, for every action, for every decision. And God will judge you perfectly. See, the humans, we can only judge in regard to the body. But God knows your thoughts. He knows the intention of your heart. He can prove it all. He knows exactly, and he will lay it all out in front of you. And he will carry out the sentencing the Bible describes to hell for those who have denied him. Now, let me just say today, in humility, just with my heart, please hear my heart. Please don't wait and think you can make that decision later. Please don't, just in your heart, will you please just listen to the good news that Jesus offers? Will you look at the sacrifice that he paid and his willingness to wash you as white as snow and forgive you of all your sin and say, though we do, none of us escape death, we got to go through those doors. I will give you freedom from judgment, but you must 
receive the gift of my son and believe that your righteousness is only through Jesus and not your works. Would you please receive Jesus? The Christian has a different experience. They go through death. They get on the other side. And on the day of judgment, here's what happens. Before God the Father, Jesus is standing there and he says, Father, this one is mine. I paid for all of his or her sin with my blood on the cross and they chose to believe in your gift to them of of my sacrifice and my life offered to them and they believed and put their faith and trust in what I did on the cross and because of that, they're mine and no one can snatch them from me. And God the Father will say, enter the pleasures at my right hand. Isn't that good news? Isn't that a great thing? So let me ask you, are you living like Jesus could come back at any time instead of living like the pagans do or living like you and I used to before we got serious about being a fully devoted Christ follower? Third question is this, am I going to serve in the church or am I going to go it alone? Peter's going to show us that until Jesus returns, every single person has a job to do. The context Peter's writing to is people who are suffering, who are being persecuted, people who are in hard times, and he's saying, listen, You still have breath in you, but you still have a job to do. So under persecution, don't run away. Don't hide. Don't hide from it. God, as long as he's given you breath in your body, has given you a work to do. And he says it this way in chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love one another deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins and offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And each of you, listen, should use whatever what? Gift you have received to serve who? Others, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Here's the picture. God has given us us grace, but in that grace that he's given us, undeserved favor, eternal life, he also gives us a spiritual gift, and we're to use that to serve others. So we've received a great gift, but we are a great gift. So grace is played out in all of its various forms. He goes on and says, if anyone serves... Or if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very word of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So the question is, am I going to serve in the church or am I going to go it alone? Am I going to say, I paid my dues. I served already. I did it in the past. Can you imagine how big the church would be if we just said, even if my feelings get hurt, I'm going to endure Like if people didn't quit because their feelings got hurt, well, the church is full of messy people. I'm one, so are you. And sometimes we, people get in disagreement with people and sometimes people are like, I'm just gonna quit. I'm gonna walk away. And they stop using the gift. They've received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're not putting out the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in its various forms. You said, I'm taking my form and I'm going home. Well, two of the values that I love about Sun Grove Church. One is this, that we are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. See, we're all consumers, but when we come to Christ, we find out that we've received greatly and God has gifted us, so we're supposed to serve. We're supposed to give. And we are the church. The church does not exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. Do you see how that's different? Some people probably drive by here and think, oh, they're just all about themselves. No, 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 no. We are the church. It's not this building. And we as a group exist for the world. He said, offer hospitality without grumbling. It made me think of our circle hosts 
people who host a small group circle in their home or in their apartment or their dorm room during the week and people come and it's a safe place to encourage one another, to build each other up, to have a brotherhood or a sisterhood that when you are facing the the persecutions and the evils of life, you've got a place to grow in your relationship with Christ and a place to to lean on other people, and it's a beautiful thing. These were people who were hurt, they were suffering. Uh, showing hospitality could be a sketchy thing because there'd be people whose property was confiscated and they come running over and say, could you bring us in your house? And you're like, I don't know, are they following you? But he says, offer hospitality without grumbling. Do what you need to do. Some of you in this room, I wanna challenge a little bit this morning. I wanna say, God needs you back in the game. You haven't paid your dues. Retirement's not in the Bible. As long as you have breath, you have to say, God, how can I serve with the gift you've given me, your church? How can I serve the church that serves your world? And how can I do that? And I want to let you know that uh, for people who are in my generation and above, that uh, we have not paid our dues. God still wants us serving till the day we die, till we have breath in us. And if you have a complaint that I'm going to point you to Don and Linda Snyder, who they just got too old. They said, we can't get on our knees with the children's ministry anymore. We can't. We're just too old. And they were. They were too old to get down on the floor and on the knees with the kids. And so, so they asked this question. So how else can we serve the children's ministry without having to get down on the floor? And they're the ones who give your kids candy every week. Okay? They're still serving till the, as long as they give it up. As long as they got breath in them. They're going to serve. And they have a joy because of it. What about you? It's so easy to just just kind of say, I've I've done it. I've paid my dues. Listen, you're not too old. You're not too young. You're not too limited. Until Jesus returns, we serve his church with the strength God provides. And your kids are watching what you're doing. And let me just say something really clearly, and this will challenge you. Your kids do not need to go to church. They don't. They need to be the church. They don't need to go to church. They don't need to go to youth group. They don't need to go to kids class. They need to be able to be the church. Your students, your kids, your grandkids need meaningful tasks. They need a reason to need to be here because they know God has given them things. God has given them desires in their hearts to change the world. God has given them desires in their hearts to do something great. And if we just give them a point of saying, go consume, go consume church, go consume youth group, then we have invalidated them from being the church. Listen, we don't know the time we have. We don't tell them to grow up and then get serious about God. We tell them, be the church right now. You're the church. Stand on our shoulders in the work that we've done, but you're gonna see farther in the future and we need your far vision to reach the next generations for Jesus Christ. You need meaningful opportunities in church and so do your kids. Until Jesus comes back, the second thing we will do as a value at Sun Grove Church is we celebrate and we serve. So we take our mission to lead people to become fully devoted Christ followers very seriously, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. We laugh and we work hard, but we play and we laugh even harder probably than we work. We have a good time. We're not too serious right here. We're not stuffy around Sun Grove. Everything we do, we want to do for the next generation so that when school shootings don't stop, that there are kids who can reach out and say, where is their hope? in the world. Why would I have a future to live for? I should just live for myself because I don't know when my day is coming. And we say there you have everything to live for. The future starts right now. 
Some of you, I want to encourage you. You need to work with our children's ministry. You need to work with our youth ministries. I got to tell you something. Let me just say something real quick here. There are some young adults and some students who don't come to church service because the need is great in our children's and youth ministries and they're serving out there both hours. I need some adults, some people my age, who will open up the opportunity for those students to at least get in the church service so they have a church service they celebrate Jesus in and then they have an opportunity to serve. Will you step up and help in our children's or in our youth so that students like that can be in here? They're willing to change the world. We need to step up and do that. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I believe in this room even right now that there are some who've never given their life to you. They've never accepted the generosity of God to forgive their sin. They haven't realized that you, Jesus, died on the cross for them. And so even right now, God, would you lead them, draw them to yourself to pray this prayer right where they're seated. They just pray it after me. It's not secret words. It's just an introduction to the God who loves them. And if that's you today, just right where you're seated, you pray something like this. Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. Wash me as white as snow. Because today, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.